Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 42, I interview Scott O'Neill, the CEO and co-founder of Rethink Investing. As the first guest who has been on the Future of Australia podcast twice, we discuss his evolution since we last spoke in March 2018 on podcast episode number five, how he has transitioned away from residential property buyers agency services to focusing on buying commercial property for his clients. He describes a journey from being a small business to a medium-sized business, including hiring six staff in the last six months, as well as having an in-house commercial property mortgage broker. We discuss how he buys 50-plus commercial investment properties per month for his clients, including some worth over $25 million for buyers in Australia and abroad. If you're looking for help investing in commercial real estate property, check out rethinkinvesting.com.au. That's R-E-T-H-I-N-K-I-N-V-E-S-T-I-N-G.com.au. So I'm here with Scott O'Neill, the CEO and founder of Rethink Investing. Welcome back to the podcast, Scott. Thanks for having me, mate. Appreciate it. That's good. So for anyone who's never come across you before, what, what's the, the story? How did you get to where you are now and, and what, what are you, what's Rethink Investing all about? Uh, so Rethink Investing is a buyer's agency, but we specialize in commercial property. So we're quite different to, I guess there's, there's probably several hundred residential ones out there. And um, we actually started as a residential buyer's agency uh, back in 2014-15. So we quickly made the switch over to commercial because we were very high cash flow seekers. So we, we wanted to help people build passive income through property. And the reality was com- uh, residential just didn't do it quick enough. And uh, there was this asset class called commercial where you can find rental incomes. It's it's around the triple the time, uh, triple amount to residential. So, you know, you're working off uh, five, six, seven, eight percent net returns. Mm-hmm. Now compare that to residential, you're probably into the threes and four gross. So what, what gross means is you've still got all your costs you've got to take out of that. So net returns that the tenant would pay all your income. So that attracted to us, um, I guess, a lot of people looking to retire quickly from uh, commercial property. And, and I shouldn't use the word quickly. It's not a get rich quick scheme. This is uh, an area where you can build income through property safely, slowly. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a very popular topic. It's helped us grow extremely fast over the years. Um, we've you know, even in the, the last six months, we've um, we've put on another six people in our business and it's really to keep up to date with oh, more people wanting this stuff. So commercial property has allowed the business to grow and, uh, yeah, we're now known as the number one commercial buyers agency in the country and, and uh, we're, yeah, we've, we do a lot more volume than others out there and that sort of gives us access to a lot better quality stock and that's what we really hang our hat on the quality of the properties we purchase. It's it's not so much about anything else, but if you get a good result for a client, then, yeah, the numbers will will speak for themselves, really. 
Yeah, and you've built an entire because a lot of people invest in property. I think it's two more than two million Australians have some sort of property investment. So it's very common, but a lot don't sort of build a business around it. What made you want to go from investing in property to building an actual business around helping others invest in property? So I was personally investing in property, and at the age of twenty eight, I actually did retire. We spent six months in Europe, so you know we bought uh, I think it was nineteen or twenty odd properties at the time, and that was producing a passive income of about 150 grand income. So that allowed us to quit our jobs. I was an engineer prior to that. My wife was in uh, marketing and media and yeah, we were just basically called it quits. And then I guess after that summer in Europe, we, yeah, like I was still always active in the commercial property market and the residential as well. And I started helping friends and family purchase properties. So that kind of accidentally kept us in touch with, uh, with the market and, and on, on a sort of a regular level. And I don't know, it just came, once I started helping their referrals, uh, I found out there was this industry called um, buyers agencies where you charge people to help them source a good property. So it, it was a bit of an accidental business that started from just helping. And then, um, yeah, obviously we got all our licenses that you need for every different state. We, um, yeah, it, it it just was, it was a hobby that turned into a profession, really. That's sort of the long and short of it. Yeah, so you almost sort of stumbled into it, right? Just sort of you had the skills, the experience personally, and then like a lot of things when someone's sort of good at pill, then come to you. And I mean, did you ever aspire to be an entrepreneur or did you, like you said, you always uh, aspired towards investing and retirement, financial freedom, and the entrepreneurship was sort of an accidental side effect of that? Or were you interested ever in, yeah. I know you've worked in other businesses and studied and, and that sort of thing, but um you know, was that ever an ambition of yours to, to be a business owner and an entrepreneur? No, not really. And I, I guess that's where the property thing, that was the side business. You know, I was working long hours as an engineer and uh, I wasn't trying to think about starting businesses. I was trying to kind of uh, build, a, I guess, a passive income that would avoid me having to go to work if I didn't want to. So um, once I built that portfolio, it probably made it, me a little bit more entrepreneurial because I had security. So I value security like it's, you know, I'm conservative by nature when it, especially when it comes to investing and, you know, taking risk and all that. But um, yeah, look, the it just sort of, it definitely just happened. But um, yeah, since being in it, like I've been doing this for nearly seven years, it doesn't feel like work. We, we help clients like last month, we purchased 51 properties for clients. Mm. So we're doing high volumes of this stuff and, uh, you know, it's as long hours again, but it is so different from employment work where you know just paid a salary and and we weren't really sort of contributing anything other than just to a massive corporation like I was mm. working for the big engineering firms and uh, that was not satisfying for me but this this is a different ball game and that's why the long hours don't really feel like long hours but um, yeah it's also there is a bit of a competitive nature like it's fun sort of going out there making sure we're, we're doing better than others in the industry and um, and that drives you to, to continually improve as well. So, yeah, no, the, the constant improvement side of the business is, is now, I think, probably more important than the revenue. Yeah, and, and talk us through that evolution over the seven years you've been running Rethink Investing. You've mentioned the transition from sort of informal to really focusing on it to um, transitioning from residential to commercial, expanding sort of nationally. What's that sort of hiring, you know, half a dozen new people, building up a much bigger sort of team? Um, what sort of stayed the same over those years, the fundamentals, and what sort of changed, evolved in your thinking as an entrepreneur? Um, so... <laughs> 
me, just being on the coal face, finding properties is still the constant. So obviously, we've got others that, uh, you know, even one guy that's been in the business from day one doing the exact same thing as me. So like, that, I guess that side of things, the property sourcing is is almost completely constant. Um, there's just more, there's more of it going on, I guess. And um, things that have changed is we're, we're really trying to, I guess, work more on the business now as well. Like you can't just do a little bit of everything. So, you know, that's one of the reasons we've had to hire more people to because we are going from that sort of small business to a medium-sized business, mm-hmm. it feels, and setting up the structure of that is it's a whole different ball game. So, you know, it, it feels different. You've got to, um, yeah, everything's just got to be, yeah, you, you just got to, everything's got to be process-driven, um, not just reactive like we were in the early days, just, you know, quickly moving around, fixing tasks that they need to be done. Like there's there's a workflow and that affects other staff in the business mm-hmm. and making sure that flow works well is is the big challenge in a busy market like this. And and it is a very busy market. Like the, the property market, particularly commercial, I've never seen it so busy. There is a lot of people leaving residential because the yields are so low and maybe the prices have gone too high in some areas and they're looking for alternate investment classes. And, you know, it's really just the share market uh, or, or potentially commercial property for an income source. There's, there's really no nothing out there that without taking a, a, an extra layer of risk out there. And that's, that's causing a lot of sort of, uh, yeah, a lot more people coming into this space. And that's going to continue moving forward. So we have to grow with that. Mm. And I think so. a lot of people who invest residentially, they're familiar with various things that drive property prices, rentability, you know, in terms of schools, amenities, transport, um, jobs, the size of a city, because, you know, people live in a house and they live somewhere and they know what they like and and certain uh, rents and things like that. But commercial is, you know, business tenants, whether it's retail, medical, these other sort of businesses that you're the landlord of and you're, you're buying their premises. So in, in your book, you cover a bit about what you look for in the type of business, because I imagine some people... Um, in the same way people fall in love with an area residentially, some people might fall in love with a business or an idea and say, I'd love to be have them as my tenant because it seems like a really exciting, maybe it's a bank and they think our banks are forever, maybe it's government, maybe it's medical, maybe it's a flashy, fun, really cool sort of trendy restaurant. Like what do you look for and, and advise your clients on in terms of thinking about a framework for thinking about a good, safe, secure, long-term commercial tenant? Yeah, look, it's always case by case. So even using... The worst case example, which is probably office at the moment, there's some office space which might be, you know, a corner street front, uh, you know, on the, the best street in, in Sydney or Melbourne. That is absolute gold at the moment. So you can't just brand any asset classes is no good. Mm-hmm. But overall, we do pick certain asset classes. So I favour industrial, mm-hmm. uh, medical, which medical can be a subsection of office or retail, but uh, obviously it's a non-discretionary spend, mm-hmm. you know, recession-proof type of industry. So your tenants tend to do well in all market conditions and that that's important. Retail is, is can be good and bad, like, you, you know, high-end fashion retail in a very expensive street is probably not a good bet at the moment. But if you've got a retail that might have some type of fast food in there or, you know, any, any essential service type tenant, like that's, COVID's a wonderful thing from a due diligence point of view on your tenant. You can see how they've performed. Uh, and uh, some businesses have gone well throughout this period. Some have completely vanished. So I guess looking at what's done well in these last two years of the, you know, nearly two years of the pandemic is 
is important. And um, yeah, like we, we look at all that stuff, like non-discretionary spend. But again, there's there's always examples of other properties that you they could still work. So you'd never you never want to sort of overall brand anything as a poor investment. Um, but there are different risks and rewards for every asset class. Yeah, and like you said, it's both the tenant and also the location, right? Because it could be a, a long-term tenant the, and you've got to look at the quality of the asset that you're actually purchasing, but also the tenants that are with that. And then what's the rentability to future tenants? And I mentioned in your book about like petrol stations, which are often there for a long time, but they can't easily be swapped to other things. So multiple sort of layers of analysis that need to be gone through. Yeah. All right. And so you've been on the Fin Review Fast Starters multiple times, like I said, building up this whole property portfolio that you're famous for, but also building up a one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia as a national sort of buyer's agency. And again, I've seen you, you're very good with PR, podcasts, social media, you know, the book you've written. How do you think in terms of marketing? Are you just sort of self-taught? You try different things? Do you look at what other people are doing? Um, you know, a lot of uh, real estate firms are sort of owner-operator, buyer's agent, seller's agent, property manager. They're quite small or there's a few big chains. But, but how do you think, and often all tend to do the same marketing um, and act yeah. the same way. So in a crowded market, how do you sort of stand out and how do you think about marketing and sort of standing out with Rethink Investing? Yeah, look, it's probably probably the education. Look, there's, there's been a couple of types of media that we've done like the ones i don't like are the the sort of clickbait articles that Mm -hmm. come out and a lot of them are just um some journalists have literally just written it on their own um you know and that that might be you know scott and mina bought x amount of properties you know it's sort of that kind of real estate ad you know a little bit um but it generates a lot of interest like one of those articles uh you know we've had over a thousand phone calls in Mm three-day period from one of those things but from a marketing point of view it's not what we want to go for because you end up getting the types of people that either want to get rich quick or they don't understand any any of the normal fundamentals of investing like we we like dealing with people that uh they sort of have a certain level of knowledge of investing and um you know if if they don't they sort of get the basic rules like you need a deposit Mm -hmm. to invest in property you don't just jump into you know, a, a risky regional commercial property because the like there's a lot of that basic stuff. So that's why we a lot of our marketing is generated on teaching. So mm-hmm. the book, it's just literally about the facts about commercial property. And and it was written with Mina and I's story as a bit of a, I guess, a, a path to it. So it's it's showing it can be done at all age groups. You know, you don't just have to be in your late 50s thinking about retiring retiring in a few years like this can be done as a younger person and you've just got to understand the deposits and you know the general rules so that's the same with our podcast we've got a commercial podcast we literally just talk about the market statistics what we're seeing in the market it's not a sales pitch and mm. i think we're, we're lucky because we're in a unique position like we are dealing with i guess a nationwide audience and we're buying properties every day of the week all over the country so we've got very good context that it's just we're literally just seeing take, talking about what we see on the the marketplace from our business point of view and i think that grabs a lot of people's attention because we're not just trying to sell to them if they want to reach out to us great if they don't we don't mind either it's, it's got we're not relying on it in that way but the more education the better for this topic because the good thing with our business, commercial property sells itself. Like if it's a good property, 
you know, I don't, I don't need to tell you it's a good property. If someone will see the numbers and they'll probably recognize the branded tenant they're purchasing and they'll know it's in a great street. Like it, the asset will do its own thing. We're just literally educating people to understand if it's a good asset or not. And that, that tends to uh, do better than our most marketing sources. And do you think, um, I mean, every industry has sort of good players and bad players, but do you think it's hard sometimes in the real estate buyer's agent, real estate educating, marketing sort of space when, you know, again, as you, I'm sure you see there's a lot of pre-roll, Lamborghini, invest in real estate, zero money down and, and that sort yeah. of stuff in the industry, right, which a lot of people are exposed to. Like you said, they see a clickbaity article that you didn't commission, you didn't pitch, some journalist has just spun up and then you are sort of attracting people again who are, uh, again, more <laughs> would be looking at those other type of companies rather than your companies. Is it just having a, like you said, very matter of fact, you know, in, in your branding, so you're never doing any of that and then people come through just a strict sort of filtering process? of who you work with or how do you best differentiate yourself from those sort of massive seminar, get rich quick um, sort of uh, ones, which I'm sure you see all the time. Yeah, look, I, I think a lot of people when they reach out to us have done a bit of homework on us. Like I think it was harder, like in the early days, it was much harder. We were literally like what you just said, it, we were trying to sort of differentiate ourselves from those kind of, like you said, the, the guy standing in front of a Learjet, like all that ridiculous crap that doesn't really work on Australians. Like it's mm. probably more of an American marketing ploy. But, um, but yeah, look, these days we, I guess, yeah, they, they're reaching out to us because they know us as mm. well. And like that's where like things like books, podcasts, you know, even just going to our website, seeing there's, you know, dozens of deals we present to show these are the numbers we're hitting. So we're just presenting facts and figures and, um, so I don't think we're really competing with those types anymore. Uh, but in the early days we were, it was, uh, and you really, you know, you had to sell yourself. Um, I don't feel like we're in that sort of boat. We still have to sort of, you know, sell aspects of the business and making sure we, we reassure the client where, you know, we've got time and we're going to do all the due diligence properly and we you know source the property at the right price and all, all the usual stuff is still there. But um, yeah, when it comes to commercial property, I guess the types of commercial investors aren't even interested in that clickbait media, media mm. type stuff. So, you know, we, we don't run into them anymore, really. So that position, some of it sounds like just time, like just proven by being honest, ethical, um, you know, reliable for years and years and years. You just kind of outlast a lot of the, the sort of easy come, easy go sort of players, right? And then also yeah. the, the positioning into commercial, industrial, away from residential, it's less of a mainstream sort of thing that someone would be looking for perhaps. Yeah, no, look, time has definitely helped. Like it's probably one of the biggest things because like no one really wants to go invest multiple millions of dollars to buy a commercial property if it's your first year of business. Mm. And, uh, and I think, yeah, time is helping us because we are established and I guess the, the thing to think about, like if a business was helping clients invest, like we've been doing it for seven years and we've got good reviews all over the internet, like it, there'd be horror stories everywhere mm. if we weren't doing a good job. So, um, yeah, the, the established nature of the business is making it easier over time. So that's just reputation. Like I think we've got a good reputation in the industry. And, um, yeah, like I always have this bit of a, you know, our motto at work, we're only as good as our last deal as well. So we're, we're trying to, every single property has to go right. And, you know, we put a massive effort to ensure that happens. And and it's hard because there's so many external factors. Like sometimes you're dealing with a bad solicitor or mm-hmm. 
tenant that's been deceitful or you know maybe the agent doesn't have all the information so there's a lot of moving parts to get every purchase right but um, yeah look we've got a an old system that's sort of been morphed over the years to being quite complex to, to ensure things do go well for the client Hmm. And, and so what about someone who is a business owner, they're an entrepreneur, and they've got a spare fifty dollars or $100,000, so they're sophisticated in terms of you know, real estate understanding. Do you think someone like that, do you see people like that, and, and are they looking for property to sort of diversify a bit, or are they often, you think, sort of better off putting just more money into their business where they've got that upside versus a salaried person on a good salary but might not, you know, with extra money would be better off kind of creating an asset and investing because their salary is more fixed versus a, a business owner entrepreneur yeah. type client. So look, commercial is probably more of a game for like a 200,000 plus minimum deposit. So, mm-hmm. you know, like our average client invests, or if I had to put a number on it, I'd say probably 500 grand. And then there's some that will invest millions of dollars of cash. And then, you know, and then there's the entry levels at 200. So it, it is an area that is, it's capital intensive and that's a barrier to entry for, for many investors. We like to say to our clients, if you've got under hundred grand to invest, maybe residential's a better angle because mm-hmm. less cash down, um, you know, you could stretch your money a little bit further with higher lending ratios and stuff like that. You're not going to get the cash flow or, you know, the retirement grade income out of residential. But um, if you are lucky enough to have that capital level, you can actually get much quicker and better results out of commercial. And many investors or many business owners are actually choosing to invest in commercial as a bit of a, an option B play. Like you can build your business up as much as you want, but um, what if you're in an industry that's slowly declining? Or what if you don't want to be in that business in 10 years' time? Like you need to replace your business income and you can do that in a totally different field with, with commercial property. And you don't have to start another business which would require 60 hours of your you know, time every week, like this might be one hour a week, mm-hmm. if that. It's So it's a lot more passive. Uh, it's it's quite safe because you are buying, you know, established businesses, established, you know, freehold land with its own value attached to it. Like these things still hold value if the tenant's not there, even, mm. even if, um, if they bail on you. So there's, yeah, it, it's something that complements your business, I guess. Mm. And so you mentioned you're hiring a bunch of new people. I think last time we spoke a few years ago, your philosophy in a sentence was sort of half as many people paid twice as much because you believe in sort of fewer, better people. Um, how have you sort of brought people on board and, again, attracting people who understand what you do? And, again, like every, every business owner trying to get great people on the team to help, how's that sort of process been of sort of scaling up the human capital within the business? Yeah, look, it's it's been good. So um, it's funny when we try hire for jobs, we're normally hiring jobs that have they don't exist on Seek. You know, like a commercial buyer's agent. No one knows what that is. They they don't really exist. So um, you've got to kind of almost train people to do a job that's not created. So that's probably the biggest challenge. Like, you know, we're hiring, uh, you know, like a valuer, for example. That's going to be an easy role to fill because there's, that's an industry that's well established. And, you know, you, it's, I guess it's different when there's a lot of those types of jobs around. So finding the right people that can learn quickly on the job and be quite self-sufficient is, is the key for our business because we are, you know, it's fast moving and, and you know, we, we sort of need that sort of, I guess someone who has experience but um, can learn quite quick into the industry. And, um, yeah, look, we, 
we all work very hard and work long hours, but uh, it, it does work and we're all sort of on the same team and that, yeah, that the only challenge is probably the the whole working from home stuff. It worked really good in 2020, um, being locked out again in Sydney. It's sort of like, it, it'd be good to get a bit more of the team environment back mm. because when you're just sort of doing it through Zoom all the time it, um, and, the, and especially when you've got new starters on the team who don't know everyone's personality, that. That's just something that – that's why I think the office market, it's not dead. Mm. Uh, it's going to decline 100%. But, um, yeah, b- businesses need face-to-face and mm. you can't do it from your granny flat or your spare bedroom for the rest of your life, I don't think, at least. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And so you talk about attracting and filtering and getting high-quality, smart, hard-working people. I imagine as your brand is sort of built up, you're more visible and – um, but, but what about assessing? Is it pre-assessment test? Do you look at people obviously who have already invested in property? Is it a you know a, a sort of probation period and you kind of give people a go? Are there certain backgrounds or areas you find people work well? Like with a lot of real estate experience, who like with the right mindset, intellect, but less real estate experience because they haven't got sort of the bad habits. So how do you sort of think about getting those people? Well, look, we, we go with both. Like we've hired people that have. Like most of us have no real estate experience. Like, you know, you know, we've got engineers, builders, um, you know, flight attendant, um, you know, all that kind of background, which has nothing to do with real estate. But the last couple we've done some real estate industry background types, and uh, I think that the mix is good. Like, we're not a real estate company. I know we. I don't feel like we are. We're not wearing pinstripe suits. You know, trying to. You know, I don't know. Not it was just not that type of industry, you know, that that you see out there, um, that in your face potential industry, and and that's why having a mix is good because uh, that conservative approach is sort of how we deal with the numbers and our clients as well. And um, yeah, look, it's more just fitting with the culture, if anything. And you know, hire people. Yeah, yeah. There's probation periods and all that, but like we've never really had to use that as a as a tool to get rid of someone where we've got a very sort of long staff retention rate and um yeah it's just, i think we're flexible and, and that that sort of uh helps because you know on top of the long hours you know it sort of balances the two out and have you seen more people like you said there's not really a market or there wasn't much of a market in that commercial buyers agent space you've got plenty of small residential buyers agents and I see that becoming increasingly popular sort of in Australia, residential buyers agents. And then you've got the really big REITs and the really big companies that buy like entire shopping centres and, and all these sort of large things, but no one's really sort of in that commercial buyers agent space. Have you seen more coming under you in that space or is it still a big sort of niche in the market um, between residential buyers agents for individual investors and big you know, institutional, commercial, publicly traded sort of real estate investment? Yeah, it's a good question. Like they're like they're the two ranges you mentioned, and we're sort of in, in the middle, and that's our niche. Mm. But it's a very small niche, and this is like I've seen a, a bunch of people, probably more like your individuals, have a crack at it. But um, it's very hard because of the low volumes as well. We've like it's not like let's say you're trying to buy a uh, you know a property between five hundred grand and five million. It, there's not that much that comes through all of Australia per week worth looking at. There's a lot of, it's just low stock. And this is why like residential, there's hundreds of suburbs, thousands of suburbs to choose from. And each suburb has a dozen or so properties to sell. Like there's a lot going on. And that's why there is room for a lot more residential buyers agency with commercial. 
it's just it's such a smaller niche world and and that's why it is a lot more difficult with the barrier to entry and plus the extra level of capital and mm-hmm. client trust so i think we're, we're lucky because we're, we're the first or one of the first to sort of get into this industry and then obviously consolidate our position so there's been definite luck with it um and timing like like any business you've got to time it right and then do it properly and um, but I could tell you, if we're starting from scratch right now and doing the same thing, it'd be a lot harder. It's, it's just there. The reputation side would be the challenge to get over, and uh, yeah, you'd have to, you'd have to just sort of bide your time for a while, and you know, and then the lure of residential buyers agency is is always there. You can do more transactions as a business, um, potentially even make more money, like if you do it well, just because because the higher volumes and. I think that's a lot of people will default to residential over the coming years because of that. Rather than like going with the, the publicly traded companies that invest in, in sort of all classes of assets at scale, you think a lot more will just kind of stick to residential and because they want that sort of bricks and mortar themselves versus shares in a, a real estate. Yeah, I was, I was talking more from like a new buyer's agent perspective. Oh, okay. Like, so yeah. If you look, yeah, so if you're looking to sort of start a buyer's agency, it's, um, Barrier to entry for residentials a lot uh, simpler because of the higher volumes, the probably the lower budget, so you'd be able to find access to more customers mm-hmm. um, quicker and, and easier. Um, but yeah, look, from a I guess a client point of view, there is um, yeah, look, when it comes to buying into Australian real estate investment trusts, you're not owning a property yourself; you're just buying. It's like buying shares on a property, and there's a lot more costs involved in terms of fees. You don't get the same leverage benefit. Um, they force you to sell every five to seven years, depending on the fund. Like you, you're sort of you're stuck in this sort of big machine. And and I think buying a property individually and maybe doing your own value adds or you know controlling your own bank loan, you can make a lot better returns buying it yourself. And and that's again why I think we're getting such good results for our clients because um, we're using our experience for them to buy a property themselves and control all the, all of the profits themselves. So it's more lucrative mm. in summary. And then you've got great cash flow on top of that. And uh, yeah, I guess that's that's the niche we're focused on because of that. Mm, absolutely. And, and so I've mentioned education quite a bit. I think last time we spoke, you were very passionate about education and university and the misalignment I've mentioned about kind of having to educate your own staff because they're roles that aren't mainstream sort of roles that you can get pill off the shelf. Um, you know, your self-education and what you've learned over the years as well as educating clients. Um, you know, and it, so, so there's a sort of theme of education. What, what are your current thoughts on sort of education? Again, hiring a lot of people and your process of educating your clients. I mean, and, and sort of, I guess, the future, like, you know, future kids and, and other people sort of out there in, in terms of being educated um, for life and, and for the workplace. What are your sort of current thoughts on that? Oh, look, I, I don't. So, like, if, if it comes to hiring, if there's a specific role that needs a degree, you know, like you'd look at that. But like, I'm never that focused on on the paperwork you know there's some of the some of the smartest people i know are you know have double degrees and you know have struggled to get jobs so there is you know it doesn't just mean you know, like everyone knows that formal education is i don't really think it's matching to the, the current world that we're, we're got it was based on uh you know getting farmers out into the uh, industrial property, you know, that whole sort of education system they build up, it, it is a little bit dated, but um, but it has its place and it can show you who's a hard worker and who's not. And, um, 
yeah, I guess I don't really focus on it. You could probably tell by my response. It's really what's the person, what have they done career-wise, mm-hmm. um, what are they looking to do career-wise moving forward, and that's more important than, uh, I guess, a bit of paperwork at the end of the day. And, um, yeah. Yeah, and do, I mean, do you look at people's ability and sort of willingness to learn? So obviously there's traditional education, but in terms of self-education yep. and trying different things, is that something that you look out for? Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, like I so, said, willingness to learn is probably the biggest thing. And, you know, I'm no different. Like every every day there's always something you're picking up new and, you know, in commercial and that's that's what makes you a better worker or person really if just by willing to learn. So, yeah, yeah it, that's the key. And if uh, if you think you know it all, you, you're finished, I think. Yeah, so it's almost an attitude, right, and a mindset of someone who's open-minded, they're willing to put in their time, willing to learn, come into a role even, you know, that they haven't necessarily done before because it's quite niche. But if you see that the willingness and they've got the fundamental ability, then you know you can sort of make it work for them. And and do you have any thoughts about, like, I mean, COVID, obviously the university sector's changed a lot, um, you know, in in sort of how it delivers things in in terms of what the future of sort of universities and education will look like, or is it not something you you follow as closely? Oh, look, I think when we last spoke, I was finishing off an MBA, so I was was a lot closer to it at that time. But I I didn't get much value out of my MBA at the time because a lot of it was not face-to-face. We're doing, we did classes face-to-face, but like, the best part was probably meeting people, you know, in that industry or, mm-hmm. you know, just like-minded people. And if if you lose that ability, like I don't know what they're sort of doing now with COVID, but I, I could imagine if it's just pure online textbook, you know, you're just box ticking. You're just try, you're like just trying to memorise something for a curriculum and, and that's not going to set you up for any workplace unless it's, you know, a memorising job, you know. That, there's, there's people skills, there's uh, presentation skills, like all of that. Um, yeah, I, I just it would be harder being being an online purchase, and but at the same time, like in this market, you can't just go off and travel on a gap year either. So, like, what do you do? You know, so maybe it is a good time to squeeze out a degree while there's very other uh, very little other opportunities. And I mean, what was your goal with the MBA? Were you looking to understand more accounting, business theory, uh, round out your sort of business fundamental knowledge or legal and or, or were you looking in to meet the, the sort of people who are ambitious sort of business types doing MBAs or what were the goals and how did it sort of line up to that? Oh, look, the only real goal um, it was really because I got told to do it. Uh, in my job, like, because I was working for like one of the ASX companies, and they said, "Look, if you want to be a CEO, because that was the, I guess, the initial career goal. Like, you know, again, you can tell I wasn't entrepreneurial. I, I just wanted to climb mm. a, a corporate ladder because mm. um, it made sense at the time. And to do that, I needed an MBA. So they actually sent me to an MBA, and um, they offered to pay for a portion of it as well, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I started it because of that, and." Um, by the time I finished, I I left the workforce. So, um, yeah, it, I did it because it was a stepping stone. And look, I probably would have kept doing it if um, if I stayed in that career path, and it, you know, I would have benefited. Just, but it was just like a ticket mm. to get to the next step. And um, I know it didn't really help. I didn't use anything I learned in the MBA on uh, starting this business, which is you know. Which is a shame, really. Mm. You know, like the, a lot of the the theory was just not relevant to on like anything. Like even even a marketing topic we did, it didn't really 
tell us anything useful for Facebook marketing or mm. Google AdWords or, you know, any of that stuff. It was more just sort of old school theory. And um, I think that's where the formal education lost me a little bit just in that experience. And, and do you think, though, like say if you were at the 10,000-foot view, like a CEO of an ASX company, the foundational theories and ideas were good? Like so obviously it doesn't translate to small business, startup, tactical, practical. But but do you think it did that or even then it's still sort of dated and understanding the, the conceptual underpinnings of, like you said, marketing, accounting, there's other frameworks that a CEO has to know? Yeah, look, there's definitely probably more benefits to that. Like there was some good people management side of things in there. So like if you really applied it, like especially bigger companies, there would have been, uh, yeah, a lot more for it. So yeah, it was probably geared towards big business, like the one I was doing at least to uh, to a startup. And because uh, startups, there's, there's like a, everything's just too fluid and moving so quickly every day. You know, you don't even know if you're going to have a business the next month, let alone trying to apply like you know some kind of 1920s universal law on you know people skills like it's it's just not like that so and, yeah and, and since then a lot of the universities you might have noticed have actually started to do sort of entrepreneurship courses and and obviously some people are cynical about that and, and the university's abilities to teach entrepreneurship but i guess there is a bit, a bit of recognition that mba is very middle management vp big business corporate yep. c-suite and, but, and there's a gap for people who want to run a business, um, but not, you know, a smaller business or a, a sort of scale-up business. Do you have sort of thoughts on that or, or sort of um, on learning entrepreneurship? You think people should sort of dive in and give it a go or work for an entrepreneur such as yourself if they want to see kind of the journey and the process on the inside? Yeah, look, I, it's a good step in the right direction, I think, for the unis because, like, there's more opportunity in starting businesses than going for, you know, a a CEO job or top middle management job like there's it's very competitive in both angles so yeah I'd, I'd just be fascinated to see how they'd implement that like who's teaching this course is it just another uh you know university lecturer that's done the rounds in a in a as a bureaucrat or not bureaucrat a public servant for 30 years like are they going to be teaching you the entrepreneurial side um so I guess whoever's teaching it will have a big impact and uh, I'm sure they'll do it right. There's, there'd be a lot of focus on this, but um, yeah, look, I think uh, working for others as well, working for sort of growing businesses is, is another great angle. And um, yeah, look, just learning from uh, people doing well in whatever industry you want to go into would would be a, a classic start, I reckon. Yeah, and what about the future of rethink investing? Who, who do you sort of look up to? Do you look at are there people in the property sector um, that you sort of look up to, even though you're in a sort of a niche role, but how they've grown and built their businesses? Or do you look at non-property businesses, like you said, the sort of fundamentals of marketing and, and people management? Um, who do you sort of look up to and, and what's the future sort of five or 10 years for Rethink Investing? Um, yeah, look, it's probably something I should do a little bit more like plan further ahead because we are, we sort of just go with it a lot and just, um, so there's no industry property businesses that I'd look up to. Um, Outside probably your, your big real estate companies, like, you know, you, you respect how, say, the likes of Colliers and CBRE, like those big businesses have expanded so far across the globe and they're, uh, they've done an amazing job and yet they've kept a very professional image. Mm. Um, yeah, they're, they're, that, that would be an angle as well. Um, but, yeah, look, it's I don't really even focus on that. It's more just how do we do well for the client and, um and now we're at that position where we're sort of 
got more workload and it's sort of now we're trying to work out how to scale efficiently without kind of uh you know making the quality drop because like i said you can't ever drop quality in in Mm. this game it's not like you know you're selling a property and if you sell it for 100 grand less you know that's the end of you like we Mm. we you know we can't do this we can't get get this wrong because we're dealing with people's finances, and mm. that's where it's not. A, we're not here to focus on scaling. It's mm. we, the minute we do that, that's that's a mistake, I think. So it's, it's about quality for the client, and um, if we grow at the same time, then then that's the bonus. But it's not the focus. Yeah, and um, are there any ways or any things your clients ask you for, like that you see a natural sort of evolution in your business? Like I know before you said you didn't want to do get involved in sort of residential property management. Is commercial property management something you'd ever want to get into again, not a sort of space you'd want to play in? No, no, look, we're, we're sort of our niche business is what we do best. Like I think getting into management, it's just not us. Like there's plenty of good people we can uh, refer that to on the ground that will also support our business. Um, you know, we're in mortgages, so we do mortgages as well, but we also work with a lot of external mortgages. Um, our focus is we're doing a lot more work with international clients. So we've got large volumes of people in Singapore, Hong Kong, um, Tokyo, the US, London. Like there's, there's, that's probably an angle we'll grow more towards over the years. Um, and yeah, look, probably just pushing uh, that gap between that sort of fund management level and the buyer's agent where we'll close the gap from, a you know, purchasing in higher volume, higher value type uh, properties. So like right now we, we help clients up to up to 20, sorry, up to $25 million purchases. So they're quite high value stuff. Um, and that's, yeah, that's a really fun space to be in because when you buy a shopping center for someone, there's a lot of due diligence mm. and there's, you know, potentially a lot of money you're going to make that client as well when you buy a well and and that's exciting so probably just targeting that angle as well and um everything else that comes with it yeah and you've mentioned some of the downsides of syndicates and reits and the fee structure would you ever look to do a lower fee more profitable more controlled sort of version of that or do the various constraints on the regulations and the structure and the payback sort of not lend itself to a a smaller sort of player or something where you see an opportunity there or again not something you've sort of thought about as much oh look no we're, we're, and we have done it before we've set up a couple of syndicates lower cost ones um the reason why like I think we'll do it properly if if the the lower end of the market dries up. And let's say someone who wants to buy a five hundred grand commercial, let's say in two years' time they don't exist anymore. Mm. At least someone who, with a lower budget can get into a commercial but own part of it. Mm-hmm. So maybe we'll do it syndications for that type of uh, I guess more entry level client. Um, <laughs> so you can have the right protections around that because you're better off buying a part of a very large property than buying a, t- a really cheap one in the middle of nowhere you know so it, it'll be a solution for that client type of client and then yeah obviously pushing the higher vol- you know purchase prices which will you know close the gap on the fund managers because we'll buy the same property but with an individual that they would with uh, a team of buyers so um yeah that's that they're probably the ends of the spectrum will go and then in the, the mortgage broker, imagine that's, again, because there's a bit of a gap between the sort of residential mortgages where there's a sort of dime a dozen sort of mortgage brokers on every street corner and, and then the high-end complex financing and, and, and for sort of complex business and um, property financing, but for sort of, again, someone wanting to buy a small 
or mid-sized commercial property. That's where there was a bit of a gap. Is that why you brought that sort of service in-house? Yeah, exactly right. So just a specialist commercial broker. That there's um, there's a lot more of them popping up, which is great. Um, but the amount of times we've lost a deal because they've used their residential broker who has no idea about commercial, it's, um, yeah, like it's probably been a hundred times, you know, so just solving that issue, it was more just to kind of allow the purchases to go through smoother. Uh, again, it wasn't a money-making exercise. It was just to facilitate the original business, which is the buyer's agency. Okay, excellent. And, and, and in terms of overseas clients, is that something that you've sought out in terms of you've got a great asset class, you've got a great thing, or is, did they come to you and essentially, and then you just found a way to sort of work with them and because they're overseas, but you, again, work around the any of those sort of bottlenecks in order to help them invest? Yeah, look, Australia's become very popular um, because of everything that's gone across the globe in the last couple of years. Australia is viewed as a emerging, safe, high-yielding, just favourable country to do business in. Um, So a lot of people, like think about Hong Kong, for example, like Mm. the the changes in laws over there, you wouldn't want to be putting your money back into Hong Kong. But not only that is Hong Kong had record low yields and Mm. record high prices. Some of the, you know, basically you're getting 1% yields on, on some office space there. So it's very attractive for someone in Hong Kong to invest in Australia because our yields are going to be five, six, seven, eight percent, you know, mm. like multiple times better than what they're getting in their own backyard. So, uh, yeah, look, people are reaching out because of that. And then, yeah, our job's sort of to help them set up their structures correctly and, you know, work around the whole Australian lending and dealing with uh, custodian Australian companies and all that kind of stuff. So it's all a little bit more complicated. But, uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting new space. and. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity there for those uh, investors looking to get into Australia because Australia does represent so much security. And, mm. uh, you know, if you're buying into a market where, you know, we haven't even opened our borders yet, yet mm. there's so much growth already happening. And, and you know, once those borders open, there's a whole lot of extra new people trying to put their money into this country as well. I think there'll be another wave of growth whenever that is. So. Uh, and that'll all be done by uh, a lot of non-residents as well. And commercials a little bit less, you know, because you're not they're, they're not purchasing people's homes, so mm-hmm. it's less of a political issue as mm-hmm. well. Like if you're buying some industrial shed in the back of some, you know, mm-hmm. people don't mind as much. So it's not a it's not a uh, political thing as well. Okay, excellent. And, and do you have any final thoughts or comments you'd like to leave the audience with? No, look, not really. It's yeah, like I said, it's just uh, you know, if you get from a business point of view, as long as it's a, a hobby, you know, you're not just doing it for the money. That I think that's the key to my success with this business. And um, it's the only way you can do the hours. If you don't enjoy it, you know, you can do whatever you want, but it's going to burn you out soon. But um, yeah, just just the enjoyment factor is so crucial. And um, yeah, I think a lot of your listeners will understand that because they're probably doing or thinking about similar stuff themselves and yeah you just got to enjoy it and was there ever something you the business started going in a way you didn't enjoy and you stopped doing something you changed something and you sort of fall back in that trap like a, a sort of a on being a salaried worker and you're doing it because it's your job and then you you forget the reason you sort of got into business oh look not really just probably when you get a bit overworked in terms of um like because we've been growing like we mm. may have held off employing staff 
a month or two or three longer than we should and then you find out you just work in extremely long hours just to kind of catch up um and you don't want to be catching up all the time and that's that's kind of a, a yeah a basic issue but you're not to know at the time like you can't just straight away hire people or you know bulk costs onto the business because mm. if things do change then you know you're going to hurt the people that you put on recently because you don't want to have to let them go so we've always run a bit of a lean machine because of that uh, but uh but yeah you've got to have the balance right too Excellent. Thanks so much, Scott. And we've got uh, Rethink Property Investing, a new book available at, uh, on Amazon or Booktopia and all the bookstores. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.